I think that the future is collaborative. I think that the future is is less precious than the past has been. I think that we've got to figure out a way to approach our business in a way that we're we are not as an industry devastated in two days. Like two days is all it took to really devastate our industry. And we've we've got to figure out a way around that. I think that that's going to take some education, both internally and to our guests. I think that we have to kind of define what our relationship is and how it works. And, you know, I think that, that we've got to look at our businesses like real businesses uh, moving forward. And we, we have to make good decisions, both in the short and the long term. And I, I think that, that for years, I, just thinking about the way we've done things is, you know, if we had something that we wanted to put on the menu, but we couldn't really charge the right amount for where we were, we would just put it on because we want, we can't do that anymore. When we do that, we jeopardize the ability for everyone on our team to earn a living, for everyone on our team to take care of their families. And I'll, I'll never put my team in that position again. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 74 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Kelly English from restaurants Iris, Second Line, and the Fast Casual Concept Finos in Memphis, Tennessee. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and if you are new to this podcast, I have been working in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have conversations with awarded culinary leaders from around the US. We talk about their path to success, their challenges they are facing, and how their cultural heritage shaped their creative process. You can find the podcast information on the website flavorsunknown.com and listen to the podcast on all podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For Chef Kelly English, the future of the industry is all about collaboration. In this episode today, Chef Kelly English talks about his restaurant concept. He describes the food scene in Memphis and mentions how his cultural heritage from New Orleans influenced his creative process. Welcome, Chef, to uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you uh, on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So let's just dive into it. So you grew up in New Orleans. You are a child from, from New Orleans. So what kind of food influence were you exposed to when you were a kid? You know, New Orleans is such a, a unique and, and special food town. It's easy when you're growing up in a place like that to kind of take it for granted. And so when I was growing up, we we ate a lot of family meals. We ate at my grandparents' house a lot. And it was really leaving New Orleans that made me realize how special food was and and how how unique, you know, the place that I grew up was and, and the things that, that I knew what they tasted like or were kind of like the backbone of the way that we eat. I, I went to college at, in, in Mississippi at, at Ole Miss. And uh, it was getting there that I, I realized, like, man, I miss some of these things. And then I moved to Spain for a semester in college. And there were a lot of common threads that I saw in the, in Barcelona over there that reminded me of New Orleans and kind of sparked a, a new a new thing in me that made me want to do this for a living. So it was kind of the, those 
very different approaches, but but also very similar connections in the way that they treat food and, and the reverence that they pay to it that, that made me see. Okay. Open. Interesting. Can you give us some example about these commonalities, you know, between yeah. Spain and, and what you were, you know, exposed to when you were a kid? Yeah. So going to the farmer's market as a, as a young adult, that was the oldest farmer's market in the world is in continuously op- operating farmer's market in the world is in, in Barcelona and going there. The area, and, I yeah, guess. Yeah. And going there and seeing someone bring a tomato to the market and they weren't just bringing a tomato that they were proud of. They were bringing a tomato that generationally people in their family that they had never met would be proud of. Like they were representing that many people. And that really, that really stuck to me. And it really made me think about the different recipes that my grandmother used to cook with and that I saw my dad cook with after work and all those, those different things and the way that they would present something almost like it was a gift, not in a braggadocious way, but like, look at this great thing that you've never had before. And here it is. And I love the idea of making people smile for a living. That's what really, I was in school to be a lawyer and I, I really just like the idea of making people smile for a living. My, my dad's a lawyer and I, I you, no one's happy when they're going to a lawyer's office. Like even if True. you're winning, you don't want to be there. <laughs> so was it in when you were in Spain then so that this like your vocation to become a chef I started? Yeah. So I had, I had worked in kitchens while I was in college and I was always one of the best ones in the kitchen, mostly because I, I cared about what we were doing and, and I kind of, I studied what we were doing while we were doing it. But going to Spain really solidified that. And I came back and I, I finished my, I changed my major to hospitality management at Ole Miss. And then I went to CIA from there. And then I, I moved back to New Orleans and worked and worked and worked. And, and now we're here. Okay. So where, where you were you in, uh, in Spain? Did you as well spend some time in France? Yes. No. So yeah. just a, a much shorter time. But I was in, in the south of France. And man, that is just such a unique place. From the landscape to the food to the people to the way they approach the the relationship between food and wine, it's just an amazing place. Have you yeah. ever been there? A little bit <laughs> in yeah. France. Yeah, I lived thirty eight years there, so yeah. that's where I was born and grew up. So in the south. Hey, in fact, I was born near Paris, and then uh, I moved moved when I was eighteen to the southeast, so near Nice. And I went to uh, Barcelona very, very often. And I, my, one of my brother lives in Avignon, so in Provence, so which is not too far as well from the, you know, the border with with Spain. So I have done a lot of, you know, for work as well, a lot of time in Barcelona, in Logroño, you know, in uh, in Madrid, you know, Valencia. So it's an amazing part so, of the world. Yeah, it is. It is a great people, definitely. And so where were you in France? Were you in close to Spain as well, like on the southwest? Yeah, I was in Bagnols-sur-Cez, so not far. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah not that's far true. We talked about that. Yeah. Bagnols-sur-Cez, yes, absolutely. That's funny. Very close to where my, my brother is. Yeah. So so if there's anything that you brought back from your you know time in Spain and in, in uh, France that inspired you when you were there? Or maybe not at the time when you were there, but that you recall, you know, after? Well, I'll tell you that one of the things that I really took that we don't do in America is watching people who work in restaurants, they take breaks. You know, <laughs> we don't do that here. You know, like it, it was, I would watch the cooks come in and they would work their lunch shift and then they'd be off for three hours and they'd come back and do dinner. I don't know how they did that. But I'll tell you, being from New Orleans, you know, the, the thing that 
that most people associate with New Orleans is France and Spain, and rightfully so. But there's a lot of cultures that have been very, very much left out of that conversation. The influence of Africa in in all Southern cooking and in cooking in Louisiana cannot be stated enough. You know, th- there may be a lot of French and Spanish influence, but by and large, the food that has lasted has been food that that people that were from Africa that did not have a choice whether they were going to come to the United States or not, either brought here or adapted what they were making to what we have, you know, in every different location, taking things that were considered trash by the, the people that, that had a lot of money and could feed themselves in whatever the way they wanted. And it's funny when you talk about Southern food, I think that, that the dish that if you had to define Southern food the easiest, you would say collard greens, right? Or greens of some type and cornbread. But what we don't talk about is that the way that, that those came about were that the people that, that owned slaves, I don't know how else to say it, they owned slaves, they ate the turnips and they gave the leaves of those turnips to the slaves. And that dish, it's not the turnips that we talk about, it's the turnip greens that we talk about that are seasoned with, with a pig's foot. Like it's just, it was to the people that had everything they wanted their traditions are not the ones that have lasted the test of time. It's the the garbage that they threw onto people that they didn't really respect at all. That's on, on top of that, you know, those people as well were having those slaves and they were cooking for them. So, That's right. you know, most of the cooking was were done by, you know, people coming from, you know, Africa or, you know, generation after. But, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a tradition in New Orleans to eat red beans and rice on Mondays. And the reason that exists is because that was around the time that everyone would do their laundry. And when I say everyone would do their laundry, I mean that the people that worked for the people that owned the big houses did their laundry and they already had a big fire going. So they put a pot of red beans on the side while they simmered the water to, to do the laundry. It's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, something that reminds me like a story when I was in Charleston of like uh, the explanation of uh, the origin of hush puppies, which I thought was, you know, really interesting as well, you know, done by, you know, the slaves and the, the, the kitchen were like separate from the house because of risk of fire. And then they were bringing, you know, the food in, inside of the, you know, their master, I want to say, you know, unfortunately, but, and then, you know, there was always the dogs that were trying to beg for food. And then, so the slaves were putting together some little things, you know, for them to throw at them. And it was like, hush, hush, hush puppies. So 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 that was was a pretty cool story. Almost universally, the food that has lasted the test of time is, is the food it's not the food of the kings and queens, it's the food of the peasant outside of just a couple of cultures. But, you know, we, we eat elevated versions of peasant food. Let's take the time a little bit to talk about the, the whole trendy things that we read on the, you know, in the media about like the, the revival of the, of the South and the Southern cooking. So it's something that has been a lot in the past, I would say 10 years, you know, in, in the media. Things about like, Focusing on reviving certain maybe local ingredients or um, ingredients that were lost, and as well, you know, the influence of other, like I say, ethnicity or ethnic groups, you know, on you know recipes from from the south. So, giving kind of an ethnic twist. So, what's what's your take on it on, on this uh, idea of the revival of the south, and how do this do you see that in in Memphis area where you are? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's big. It's big here. I mean. Like a lot of it, like Indian communities, correct? Right. And I think that every day we understand a little bit more. You know, I, I think that 
back to what we were talking about a minute ago, I think that history books were written by people who decided what hit, what go in history books. You no, know? and still the case today. Yeah, <laughs> I learned more about the history of our country and of, of the region that I grew up in and that I live in by cooking than I have about the history books. And I'm not saying that the history books were were wrong. They just didn't have everything in it. And we we tend to gloss over difficult conversations when you're talking about grammar school and elementary school history books. And there's nothing that comes out of a pot that's a lie, you know? And the thing that I think that is so interesting about Southern cooking is it's very simple ingredients and it's very few ingredients that all go together to make really special stuff. And I think that every day, the definition of what is, what is the South, who is the South, I think it changes. And it doesn't, I don't mean that, that we are Yes, more people are coming here or, or people are leaving. That changes. But we are understanding who we are better every day than we did before. Okay. And it's almost like a continuation of the story of the South, you know, with those, like say, new influences coming from, you know, like different ethnic groups. You know, we are talking about like the Indian community, but it could be, you know, Korean community, Vietnamese communities and, you know, and so on. So I think it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, it, when you talk about the, the way, how things grow here, you know, you just named a bunch of cultures that are predicated on, on an abundance of rice for their cuisine. So is the South, you know, they're, they're all very kindred, you know, when, when you start with rice. And I love, I love any dish that starts with rice. So very cool. So can you describe us or tell us a little bit about your the food concept that you have in Memphis? So you have Iris, you have uh, Second Line, and then you have as well the, the fast casual concept of Finos. Yep. So Iris is what I think that the people who settled in New Orleans would have cooked had they settled in Memphis. So the name restaurant Iris, the, the state flower of Tennessee is an Iris. The fleur de lis is a drawing of a shadow of an Iris. It's kind of where... Tennessee and New Orleans come together. But Iris is this kind of this esoteric study on what I think all of the adaptivity that the people that, that settled in New Orleans and decided, you know, what is the, the cuisine of, of that area, what they would have cooked given the bounty of up here. And then next door, we have the second line, which is a po'boy shop. And it is the complete opposite. It is exactly, it is, there's no thought behind it. It is exactly the bar that I grew up going to and eating in. It is the way God made a po' boy with mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato, and cheap pickles, the right bread and delicious filling and great cocktails. And then Fino's down the street is an institution of Memphis that shut its doors a couple of years ago and, and we bought it and revived it. And it is your, your textbook neighborhood corner Italian deli. I love it. I love going to, to sit and have a sandwich over there. We have seen in the past, you know, year and, and, and few months, you know, the, the, the hospitality industry being devastated by, you know, the, the pandemic. And, um, so how do you, how do you see the, the industry evolving in, in, in the future? Yeah. It's been a tough year. You know, we've, we've tried real hard to find every nook and cranny that we can to take care of as many people as we can. I think that the future is collaborative. I think that the future is, is less precious than the past has been. I think that we've got to figure out a way to approach our business in a way that we are not as an industry devastated in two days. Like two days is all it mm -hmm. took to really devastate our industry. And we've, we've got to figure out a way around that. I think that that's going to take some education, both internally and to our guests. I think that 
we have to kind of define what our relationship is and how it works. And, you know, I think that that we've got to look at our businesses like real businesses uh, moving forward. And we, we have to make good decisions, both in the short and the long term. And I, I think that that for years, just thinking about the way we've done things is, you know, if we had something that we wanted to put on the menu, but we couldn't really charge the right amount for where we were, we would just put it on because we want, we can't do that anymore. When we do that, we jeopardize the ability for everyone on our team to earn a living, for everyone on our team to take care of their families. And I'll, I'll never put my team in that position again. Okay. So you mentioned something at the beginning saying that the future is collaboration. So what does that mean, you know, to you? So is it collaboration, uh, I'm guessing, within your team, collaboration with other chefs, collaboration maybe with outside of the, the food world, collaboration with your maybe purveyors, suppliers, farmers? Yeah. So I think that one thing that we've had a lot of success with over this last year is we've done a bunch of collaborative wine dinners, both with, so they've all been virtual and they're all local. We, we make food and package it in a way that's easy to heat up and we give a food demo on, on a Zoom call and we've partnered with a local wine shop to do that. So we have wine experts on the call. We have, you know, us from the restaurant that are showing you different things. We've also collaborated with guest chefs. So. We've done dinners with Mike Galata. We have Steve McHugh coming up. We have, we have Vishwesh Bot from, from Snack Bar in Oxford coming next month. And I think that people are starving for an experience. And I think that the more that, that we can collaboratively pack into an experience, I think the more we can all get out of the same basket. And I think that the days of, when I say xenophobia, I don't mean in general. I mean, it's a culture with restaurants that you want to be the best and you don't necessarily play with others a lot. I think, yeah. I think that that attitude is dead. Looking at the, yeah, looking at the others and neighbors as competition, you know, yeah. instead of collaboration. No, yeah. There's all, there's a symbiotic positive karmatic flow that we have to hit. And I think that, I think that that is the future. I think it's, and whether it be in our industry or with, it could be with a photographer, it could be with, with, you know, a local concert hall. It could be all kinds of different things. People want experiences and they want, atypical experiences i think moving forward as as for what they're used to seeing and it's up to us to to figure that out we've had a great amount of success being collaborative and kind of opening up the windows to to our house okay so you mentioned collaboration with uh, this wine store uh, maybe you can mention them yeah joe's yeah. joe's wine shop they're okay. on on poplar in midtown memphis and we've done geez almost 70 wine dinners in a year so you said that you prepare the food, then there's a demonstration, and then there is, I guess, partnership with people can get the wine. What what kind of uh, region have you have you covered? Not, the, I'm sure you're not going to list like the sixty or seventy of them, but just some highlights. Yeah, so we did a lot of a lot of Catalan dinners. We've been to Croatia. We've been to every wine region of France. We've been to Champagne, Bordeaux. We've been to Loire Valley. We've been to Burgundy. We've been in the south of France. We've been to cool. we've been Absolutely. to I guess. India, yeah. yeah. We've been to the Catalan region. We've been to Chile. We've been mm -hmm. to, we've been a couple of California dinners. We've been to Greece. We've been to, I can go on and on and on. Like we have okay. every week. So, we so I remember when we, we chatted, you know, before the, the recording here that you, you mentioned that you have seen some interesting communities between those different, you know, uh, cuisines around the world. So can you share with those thoughts with us? If all those dinners, 
what I've found is that outside of a couple of different very specific ingredients and a couple of different offshoots, a braise is a braise is a braise. And the way that you cook things from one culture to the next, outside of some very specific examples, they're fair. You might season some with a little more vinegar. You might season some with a different spice or a different herb here. But by and large, the methods are, are not that different. You get into Asia and things are a little bit different. And you get into a couple of different cultures, you, things are a little bit different. But South Africa is not very different than Spain when it mm-hmm. comes to how they cook food. Yeah, okay. So you so you are referring those community on uh, more than the techniques versus like the ingredients, correct? But some ingredients, but yes, certainly the techniques. There, there have been a few surprising ones. Croatia has got a, an interesting way that they they roast their meat, and th- there are some desserts that. So Croatia was interesting. We did a dessert in Croatia called Astanska torta, and that is is a pie that's made with eggs, almonds, breadcrumbs, and penne pasta. It's the strangest <laughs> thing I ever saw. Oh wow! Yeah, it's something. <laughs> And what was the way of bra- of uh, braising meat then? You were yeah. Saying? So what they do is they sear their meat and then they put their vegetables that are raw down on the bottom of their pan and they put their liquid in there and then they put their meat above the liquid. So it's almost like a steam. Yeah. It's dripping. Yeah. Or? And the drippings kind of turn into everything. One homogenous thing. It takes a little bit longer to cook, but it was super delicious. Okay. So how how do you get to you know do your research you know about all those elements because obviously I'm I'm not sure that you've been to all those countries so you know on the internet and then you are searching for interesting you know dishes or yeah so every one of those regions will will we will research we've had you know a different amount of time this past year than we have in in the past so I've gotten to really like dive into those different locations and and not only the reasons how they cook, but the reasons why they cook the way they cook. And those are, those are pretty interesting too when it comes to different dishes of, of what may be out there. And when it comes down to, let's say that you're in the border of Germany and, and France over there in Alsace. Mm-hmm. Alsace, yeah. That, that area has been Germany. It has been France. Mm-hmm. It has been and Germany, Germany again. and it has been France. And it goes yep. back and, and there's a lot of elements that you'll find in, in, hardcore German and hardcore French. And there's some that you don't find in either in their their category cuisine. It's just an interesting, and lots of places are like that. You know, that comes into a whole different conversation about the Middle East and how borders are drawn and they're just kind of arbitrary. But that border of, of especially Germany and France is a, is a fairly arbitrary one. The collaboration with other chefs, so that you mentioned the dinners that you're organizing, Again, can you explain to us how it works? Because I think it's a little bit different from, you know, other chefs organizing, you know, collaboration dinners during the pandemic. I'm obviously not, you know. Sure. So we we did, this past one we did was with Kevin Nashen, for example. I don't know if you know Kevin. He's a James Beard Award winner from from a Sydney Street Cafe in, in St. Louis. He's one of my favorite human beings on the planet. He sent us his recipe. So that's one of the first things that we start with. People have to trust us. To send us their recipes. We're not going to reproduce them. We take their recipes. We cook them exactly the way that they prescribe. We package it for our guests here in Memphis to come pick up. The first course that we do, we leave as a demo. So we'll give them some raw components of it so they can learn something from a chef that they normally wouldn't do. We get on, the, the guest chef comes on, leads us through a demonstration, tells so us. So virtual. All, okay. Oh, yeah. it's all virtual. Yeah. Everyone's at home. Everyone can drink two bottles of wine. They don't have to drive anywhere. It's kind of perfect. 
and they've been really well attended. But you get to you get to not only see a chef cook, but you get to meet that chef and and his or her personality really comes through. You can tell and you can you can tell where you want to go eat. We've had people that have decided that they want to start traveling and they've gone to the restaurants that we've partnered with people on to 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 go eat when they went to go visit their towns. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exposure, great. So, and there's the third things that you have uh, studied as well during the pandemic and that you are continuing at the moment that are your cooking classes. Yeah. So yeah. again, can you share with us what, what you're doing? Sure. So we have a, a, a series of cooking classes that we do them twice a month on Tuesdays. And you can be anywhere in the country and take these. We work with a group called Table 22 that manages subscriptions. And so we send out a shopping list that you can get at any grocery store. And and then you, you come on and join us and it takes about an hour, or an hour and a half. And I teach you how to make a dish. At the end, you have dinner for your family. It's a lot of fun. We've done some things that are very basic. We've done some things that are a little more challenging. Some people cook along with it, with us. Some people grab a bottle of wine and watch, and then they get the recording after. And, and it's it's been a ton of fun. I'll tell you that these things that we, these non-traditional things that we've talked about have allowed me to hire more staff than I normally would have been able to do. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we went in one day from 78 employees to seven. In one day, we laid off 71 people, and we've brought back about 40 up to now. And without what we've talked about, I think we'd probably be in the neighborhood of 30. But, you know, we, we, we really, we want to take care of the people that, that depend on us. And if that means that we can find non-traditional ways to support them and not look at, you know, our daily shift reports the same way that we used to, then so be it. Mm-hmm. So are you going to continue those initiatives, you know, in, uh, in the future then? Yeah, the cooking classes for sure. The, mm-hmm. the, the virtual wine dinners, we are, we are certainly seeing that people want to go out to eat. People miss that. I totally understand that. So we've gone from doing them every week to every other week. And that's been a, a better formula, not just for us, but for our guests as well. But yes, we, we won't stop doing those things. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to creative, like uh, creating uh, a new dish. So can you share with us, you know, um, your sources of inspiration and, and how do you get about creating a dish if you have like a, a thought process in terms of um, your creative approach? Sure. I'll tell you that the hardest part of this past year when you talk about creativity is that creativity and productivity are not friends. It's very difficult to be creative and productive at the same time. I liken it to trying to a guitarist to to think about a new song that he's going to write or she's going to write while they're playing a different song you like your brain just goes fried so this past year all chefs and anyone that's continued to work in restaurants has had to be crazy productive so when it comes to creativity that's been it's been a real challenge this past year you know my creative process i really i really start with i think about different ingredients that i want to use whether it be a vinegar or whether it be a piece of meat or whether it be a vegetable, whatever it is. And I like to build around those things. I like to, to, to test things incrementally from raw all the way to burnt sometimes to see where I want something to land. I, I also, when I'm, when I'm going through my creative process, I like to keep in mind how we're going to accomplish something through service. So it's easy to create this monstrosity of something that's very impressive. That you can't, that you can't recreate or get out of the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. So w- I always want to keep those things in mind, but I also like to take input from members of my team as well. So 
everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different background and everyone has a different way we look at things. And we'll, we'll put up a dish. We'll all talk about it. We'll all give some input. Does this need more this, more that, more that? And, but I mean, it's not a complete democracy, but I certainly like to take input into to how something's going to end up. And have you seen your process evolving in time when you were, let's say, a young chef and, and who you are now? Yeah. Um, in terms of like me, maybe I've seen and discussing with a lot of, of your peers that they, they seems that I'd say that their creative process was very much more complex. You know, at the beginning with a lot of steps and trying to, you know, put a lot of things that they learn and how they were exposed to. And then throughout that time, then they were more about simplification and let the produce shine and, you know, oh, yeah. and talk to themselves. Look, in, your, in the beginning of your, your career, you're trying to impress everyone at every single turn, every time they do anything. And I think that I, I like to look at going out to eat as kind of like a date. I mean, you might be on a date when you're going out to eat, but. You can't, if you're on a date with someone, you can't constantly try to impress them at every single second and every single moment. And I think it's the same way with food. Like there's got to be negative space. There has to be a, a time for, for things just to be fantastic. There's got to be th time for things just to be surprising. And there's got to be times for you to sit back and, and ponder what you just had or, or whatever it may be. But I think when I look back early in my, my creative process, early in my career, It was all about impressing people all the time, all the, like, no matter what, like, how are we going to impress? How are we going to impress? And now I really, I really just want, I want to cook wholesome food that means something. It's, and not food that, that means something isn't always there to impress. Like sometimes, sometimes there's a bite of something that just like warms your soul. It didn't impress, but it just, it just like hits you somehow. And that's what I look for in every dish we make is to just kind of hit you in some different way. There's also, you know, we, we definitely pay attention to different cultures that went into making up what Memphis is and what New Orleans is. And we try to, to, to either pay homage to those cultures or we try to steer clear of them if it's an inappropriate thing for us to, to replicate. If we, are, if we are taking away someone's ability to earn a living down the street by doing something here, then we won't do that. Okay. So you're talking about flavors, and I'm interested that uh, if you have throughout your career created maybe an unusual association, you know, could be sometime bringing some sweet flavors into a savory dish or, or the reverse. So um, yeah, any, any examples uh, to share? Yeah, there is one dish that we made, this is years ago, and we still put it on the menu during the summer, but it's a, it's a grilled Gulf amberjack with shrimp. Peeled tomatoes, a salad of jalapenos and cilantro, and then we make a harissa cafe au lait. And in that harissa cafe au lait is shrimp stock, coconut milk, garlic, bay leaves, cumin, coriander, more shrimp shells, sugar, lime, lime zest, and pasilla chilies. And we steep all that together and we blend it up and not like, It, none of it worked until we put the sugar into it. It was the strangest thing. Like I was trying to, originally I was trying to make this version of a pho that I Got could it. also, okay. that I could also play on, on a coffee press with. So when we serve it at the table, it served in a coffee press and we, oh, very cool. So that's nice. But the, the, what it ended up being is not anything like what we set out to make. And I hope you come to Memphis sometime. I'd love to make that for you because 
the nose on it is just, it'll punch you in the face. Talking about Memphis is how would you describe the, uh, the, the culinary scene in, in Memphis nowadays? Uh, maybe not during the pandemic, but you know, you know what I mean? I would describe the, the scene here in Memphis with a word that you probably wouldn't expect, which is diverse. I don't think people think of Memphis as diverse, but I can take you to all kinds of different restaurants here in town. I can take you, we've got, we've got several African restaurants. We've got the gamut of South American cuisine here. We have an amazing Vietnamese community here in Memphis that, that runs amazing restaurants. Memphis is a really, really diverse town that shows when you go to, to certain streets here. Summer Avenue, you can go and eat Latin American cuisine all up and down that. You go to Cleveland Avenue and you can eat Vietnamese all up and down it. It's, it's, a, it's a great town. I'm really, I'm really proud to live in Memphis. And do you think that this, this is like known from like nationwide? Because I, you are, you guys are located, it's like what, three and a half hour drive from, from Nashville. So we hear quite a lot about Nashville and maybe a little bit less about Memphis. Yeah. And there, there's like a little rivalry between Nashville and Memphis. And as a Memphian, I would tell you the cool <laughs> thing about Memphis is we don't need to have our, our backs padded left and right. But, <laughs> but I love Nashville. Uh, Nashville's a great town, but no, I don't think a lot of people know about the, the, I think that I think that people know about I don't know ten restaurants here in Memphis when they when they come here, but it's the ones that you don't know about that will really knock your socks off. I would like to pick your brain, you know, about like a recipes, you know, maybe all a guideline, you know, for recipes for uh, home cook that are and foodies that are listening. So how would you suggest them maybe to make a gumbo, but uh, you know, like Kelly English style? So what is the spin that you are going to put on it? Well, so I think that if we're talking about gumbo specifically, you have to start with your roux. If your roux is wrong, you ain't going to be right. There's just no two ways about it. And there's the old adage of, you know, this, this old Cajun man standing at a stove stirring roux for hours and hours and hours. If you take so a roux is equal parts fat and flour. If you use oil and you get your, your pan really hot, put your fat in there, and then you put your flour in and then stir it up and throw it into a 350 degree oven, you can bake your roux and it'll come out to a perfect brown that you want it to be at. You've got to stir it every once in a while, but you don't have to stand over it all the time. So I would tell you to start there. I also like to add if I want to make the perfect gumbo, and normally I don't make just a little pot of gumbo. I'm making 10 gallons of gumbo at a time. I add my roux in with my trinity at the end. So I'll start cooking things. And the only reason I do that is so I can get the exact proper thickness that I want it to have. That's not like some technique that makes it better. It actually, it's pretty much the same. I just want to have a consistent thickness. I would also tell you that when you, after you get your, your, your roux brown, you want to put your onions in before you put your celery and bell peppers in because you, you want your onions to kind of brown and caramelize. It'll, it'll make everything a whole lot darker. One thing that's really important, whether you're making something at home or whether you're using something store bought, you want to use unsalted chicken stock or chicken broth or beef stock or beef broth, whatever, whatever stock or broth that you're using, you want to make sure there's no salt in it because you want to add your own salt in it. And you want to make sure that the sodium that's in it is, is a salt and not nitrates or nitrites or, you know, whatever it may be. But you've got to have a trinity. Trinity is onion, celery, bell peppers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? 
And yeah, uh, yeah. I've been too so. <laughs> and and then you've got to respect the garlic. Now, if you're making a Creole gumbo, you want to add tomatoes into it. If you're making a Cajun gumbo, yeah. no tomatoes. So that's yeah. the easiest. A lot of people lump Cajun and Creole in together when they're talking about cuisine, and I understand why. But really, the the basic way that you can tell the difference is if it has tomatoes in it, it's Creole. If it doesn't, it's Cajun. There are there are, are, are exceptions to that rule, but there aren't too many of them. And I like to make, my favorite gumbo is wild duck. And I like, I like chicken. I'm not really a seafood gumbo. Yeah. I, I, well, no, I like sausage. I don't dig on seafood gumbos. I never have. I like shrimp creoles. I like that stuff. But I, I just, I don't know. There's something about a seafood gumbo that. But you said duck. I, I think I never had one with, uh, with oh, duck. I'm going to make you one. Okay. I, right. I come to Memphis, definitely. Maybe when I'm in Nashville in August, maybe I can drive like a three and a half hours. I can't serve it to you in the restaurant because that would be illegal, but I'm going to make you some. Why? Because of what? The duck part? Yeah. So when I say duck gumbo, I'm talking about wild duck. I'm not talking about Ah. stuff you can buy, but I'm going to make you some. You're going to have some. Okay. Okay. Very cool. I cannot wait. And now I probably have to drive the three and a half hours just to come and see you. Very cool. Thank you so much. I'm going to take a bit of time here to uh, go through uh, different like rapid fire questions, if it's okay with you. So um, the first one, in fact, it's uh, kind of a, maybe a development of what you are started talking about. It's uh, you and I are going out in, in Memphis. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? I would take you to Las Tortugas, which is a, uh, a, a torteria, a Mexican deli run by my friend Jonathan out in Germantown. I think it's the best restaurant in Memphis, and I'm including my own in that. I would take you over to Cleveland Avenue, and we would go uh, We would go eat some Vietnamese food. Uh, we'd go to a place called Phong Long. I would take you to Payne's Barbecue. We'd go have some barbecue down in my favorite place down there. We would go... We'd probably go have breakfast. I would take you to the arcade. It's where... Elvis, you see breakfast, which is a pretty fun little thing to do. And I would take you late night to a place called Ernestine and Hazel's, and we would have a, a thing called a soul burger that only works really well if you're if you're trying to soak up some liquor that you've had earlier in the day. <laughs> so, talking about liquors, any interesting bars in uh, Memphis? Tons of tons. interesting, tons. Yeah, the bar scene in Memphis doesn't lack anything. Like it, okay. it'll stack up with, with anywhere. Any good place for craft cocktails or bourbon or. Yeah. I mean, well, we could go to my restaurants. We could go to Bari next door. We could go to any of Andy and Michael's restaurants that they have. There's so many, like there's no dearth of, of great bars here in Memphis. Okay. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Guilty pleasure food. I like Cheetos. Cheetos. I do. Okay. Cheetos, especially when I'm traveling. Like if I'm on a plane or if I'm driving, I don't know why. I like Cheetos. Okay. Yeah. I, I share that. I, I love those two. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career. I love John Fulce's encyclopedia of Cajun and Creole cooking. It tells, we talked earlier about the ethnicities that are not just French and Spanish that influence that the, the first half of that book is about that. The French laundry cookbook, my era of cook coming up in the world, that was that was like the definitive, definitive book. And it's not a cookbook, but Kitchen Confidential is a book that I read before my career started 
that I just could not put down. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I thought were really cool in that book then that I wouldn't dare allow come near my building. Like they talk about drugs in that book a lot. They're, we don't have a drug problem in my restaurant. We don't, we don't drink at my restaurant if you work there. But yeah, I would put those three books. Okay, cool. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? So as a poster child for ADD, I can't, I cannot handle competing noises. I can't, so we can't have uh, radio. So no music? Mm -mm. No. Okay. I feel like my, my head's about to tear in half. But yeah, it, that would be it. Uh, or two people speaking to me at the same time. I can't. I just, I almost have to leave the building. And that, that probably sounds a little too too much on edge. I'm, I'm not like an on edge guy. I just, if, if two people are trying to tell me something important at the same time, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. So beside the classics, in terms of condiments, uh, spices, sauces, when I think about classics, I mean mayo, mustard, and that kind of things. What do you like to have uh, on hand at home? Not at your restaurant, but at home. Well, both. I like to have sambal. Sambal is an important ingredient to me. I, I think that it's one of those ingredients that if you use it right, you just can't. Nobody can really put their finger on what you did there, but it's it's just so, so easy. I love cumin. I myself even using cumin more often than I probably should. I man, there there are so many different things that that I love to use. Brai spice is a South American spice that they use on on meats and vegetables. It's it's, it's intense and it's delicious. So I, I give you those three. Okay. Any hot sauce? Well, I mean, so okay, we're going to talk about hot sauce. So I think that there are two types of hot sauce, and then there's everything else. I think that there is. Hot sauce that's made in Louisiana. <laughs> okay. With a big tea. All right. <laughs> Tabasco is number yes. one. There's a couple other ones as well. And then I think that there are hot sauces that are made, well, three types for Latin America. And I think that there are Asian hot sauces, but I don't want any hot sauce made in Texas. I don't, made, I don't want any hot sauce that's made in New York. I just don't want them on a commercial level. Now, I'm not talking about someone in the back making a delicious hot sauce at their house. But yeah, so Louisiana, Latin America, Asia, and then the rest is just... A little bit, a little bit in the Caribbean as well. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. But they don't... So like, if I'm eating Mexican food, I don't want Tabasco. I want Valentina, right? It's a different thing. So anyway, those are the, the families of hot sauce to me. Very good. Okay. Chef, thank you so much for your time. I really love to have you on the, on the show. So I hope uh, you had a good time. Well, no, thanks for having me. And, and I would tell all of your listeners to go support your local small restaurant. They need it. And even after things get busy, you may go on the weekends and say, oh my gosh, they're so full. We're not on Wednesday nights. So if you really want to help your local, your favorite restaurants, make Wednesday like Saturday in that restaurant. Uh, Very go, eat, good. go eat during the week. It would really help us out a lot. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode with Chef Kelly English, please share it with a friend or a colleague. It is really easy to do it from your phone. Word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast's audience. So I count on you. You can find the show notes of this episode and all the other episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. And please follow us on your favorite podcast platform as you do not want to miss any future episode. My next guest will be worldwide renowned pastry chef Antonio Bashur from Miami. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people.
You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.